You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. Tuesday, February 13th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a discussion with Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, about rising extremism from across the spectrum in the United States and how it affects our politics and our society. Sarah Wald, adjunct lecturer in public policy and chief of staff and senior advisor to the dean at Harvard Kennedy School, moderated. Hi, my name is Tim Glenn Burke. I'm an Ash uh, Center Executive Director, and I'm just going to take 30 seconds to say welcome to the Ash Center, and also to thank you for coming for today's uh, very timely conversation on extremism and its impact on U.S. politics and society. Uh, as a center devoted to making democracy work better, we're really pleased to host uh, Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League and also Sarah Wald, who is the Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor to Dean uh, Doug Allendorf and also an adjunct lecturer of public policy. Sarah's going to introduce uh, Jonathan. I just have one piece of business, which is that today's conversation will be recorded and shared publicly through our uh, podcast series, the Ashcast, and that's for the conversation uh, as well as the Q&A. just want you to know that. Secondly, we're really delighted to have Sarah uh, moderating today, not only because she's a good friend of the Ash Center, but because she brings a really diverse and impressive background in the public sector, in the practice of law, and in higher ed, of course, um, with a with a common thread of her unique expertise at the intersection of law, politics, and policy. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sarah. Thank you, Tim. Um, So I'm going to um, welcome Jonathan, who we're very excited to have here today, both um, because of his expertise and because this is such an important current topic. And he's going to talk then, and then we will open it up for questions at the end. So Jonathan Greenblatt is the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League and its sixth national director. He has been in that role since 2015. And, of course, the ADL started in 1913 with a goal to fight the defamation of the Jewish people, and which it still has at its core. But as he will talk about, it's also a much broader civil rights organization and joining at some of the intersectionality of other kinds of civil rights issues now. Um, since he's been at the ADL, he's, met, he's had a number of priorities, including identifying and countering the growing threat of cyber hate, obviously a very current um, issue. Prior to joining ADL, he worked at the White House as a special assistant to President Obama and as director of the Office of Social Innovation and Civic Participation. He's also done a lot of work in that social innovation space and around um, solving social problems through the private sector and through social innovation enterprises. Um, He is a local college graduate from Tufts, and now that we have uh, our newly named Harvard president as president of Tufts, maybe he can give us some advice on that. Um, Also earned his MBA from the Kellogg School at Northwestern University. So I'm going to turn it over to Jonathan, who's going to talk about extremism now, and then we'll open it up to a broader discussion of everybody. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So it's really a treat for me to be here. Uh, I, I went to the other school down the road, right? which I guess has increased prominence. Now you can mention Tufts by name because of President That's right, but sometimes Bacow. we meet, meet <coughs> MIT as the other school down the road, and Larry got both MIT and Tufts, too. And I guess right. he's connected to both. both. So right, in, right, in right. So we're all part of the I same family. It. Thank you for having okay. me. Uh, I want to acknowledge that uh, our national our, uh, chair, uh, Esther Epstein is here. She'll take the role in November, but we're really delighted to have Esther here. Uh, and Welcome. And uh, their ADL staff, my New England regional office, who are including around Dan Hart, who used to be at the Kennedy School, who's with us, is somewhere. There he is. Dan's in the back. So um, I'm going to make the assumption that everyone, although we've had a New England regional office of ADL here for, for decades and decades, that everyone isn't familiar with ADL. So maybe what I could do is provide a teeny bit of background about the organization and what we do, and then talk a little bit about the moment that we're in today. Um, so by way of background, the Anti-Defamation League, or the ADL, was founded in 1913. It was founded right around the time that a Jewish man was lynched outside of Atlanta. He was falsely accused of a crime. He was, there was, a, he was, was sent down, his name was Leo Frank. 
sort of an apocryphal case. He was sent down, from, came down from New York to manage his family pencil factory. And while he was there, there was a great deal of very pervasive prejudice. Uh, and a young girl was found sexually assaulted and strangled on the property. And instantly, the blame, people cast blame on Leo Frank, who was the Yankee and the Jew. And so there was what we might consider sort of a sham trial. And he was found guilty and sentenced to death. Uh, it was clearly not due process. And so the governor uh, reviewed the case and, to show some leniency, lowered his sentence from the death penalty to life in prison. And the mob was so enraged by that, they tore Leo Frank from his jail cell and they hung him from a tree. Now, to be frank, uh, if you will, we live in a country where lynchings committed against African-American men and boys were a common occurrence in the South for, for hundreds of years. So in and of itself, this case was notable, not because it was a lynching, but it was the first time a Jewish man had been killed in such a way. And it was just decades after the Dreyfus trial really captivated Europe, a similar kind of case. And so the ADL was founded in that moment. It was founded by a series of Jewish men in Chicago who were living in a moment where, look, there was pervasive prejudice. Jews couldn't live in many neighborhoods because of restricting housing covenants. They couldn't attend many universities, and those that they could clamped down on their admission with quotas. They couldn't work in many professions. There were simply cultural practices that kept Jews out of the medical field and the legal field and the investment field. Um, and there was widespread characters and stereotypes in the media. So these individuals set out to create an organization, and they wrote a long charter. And in that charter, you could find what we still use as our mission statement. We've been using it for over 100 years. <clears throat> they wrote that the purpose of this organization would be to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all. So what was interesting is in 1913, when the Jewish community was sort of weak and vulnerable, and as I said, there was widespread discrimination and pervasive prejudice, when literally they didn't have the economic resources or the kind of social capital that the community enjoys today, and their future was very uncertain. These individuals said, we will create an organization that will fight for ourselves, but also fight for others. That we'll work to make America better for its Jews, but also better for all people. The idea being that what's good for all people it would also be good for its Jews. That was a very bold assertion at a time, again, when the community didn't really have much of a leg to stand on. But that's motivated the work for over 100 years. So the ADL basically does three things. We, do, we try to fight anti-Semitism and all forms of bigotry as a civil rights organization that uses advocacy, education, and law enforcement. So advocacy. We try to change laws through the courts or in Congress with specific attention to protecting minorities, the Jewish community, and other marginalized groups, and working to defend the First Amendment and the, and the, the freedoms enshrined in it, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, etc., division of church and state. Number two, we realized long ago, oh, and I should say in terms of advocacy, what does that mean? How does that play out? Well, the first amicus brief we filed in the Supreme Court was in 1947, a case that was dealing with restricting housing covenants that kept blacks and Jews from living in certain neighborhoods. The second amicus brief was the Brown v. Board of Education case. And so that's a good example of where when the ADL filed that amicus brief, there was a lot of dissent in the organization. And some said, this isn't part of our mandate. We're supposed to fight anti-Semitism. The leadership of the ADL believed, no, 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 no. Go back to the mission statement. It's justice and fair treatment to all, not just to us. And so literally, that led the gentleman who had my job uh, to develop a very close relationship with Dr. King. And I have this wonderful picture in my office of uh, when they signed the Voting Rights Act. It is LBJ. It is Roy Wilkins, who is CEO of the NAACP. It's uh, RFK. It's Dr. King, and it's Ben Epstein, the head of the ADL, all standing together right there in the White House when they signed that. Or another good example would be standing up for immigrants. So the ADL was concerned about anti-refugee rhetoric and anti-immigrant rhetoric. In the 30s and the 40s and in the 50s, when Joe McCarthy was really whipping this up, Ben Epstein finally said, enough. And so he actually, why did he say enough? Because the Jews remember that we were once strangers too. 
We were once strangers in Egypt and have been strangers in many places over thousands of years. And so he commissioned a young senator, uh, the junior senator from Massachusetts, who was the grandson of a well-known immigrant, to write a book about the fact that we were a country of refugees and a nation of immigrants. And that book, A Nation of Immigrants, Stan, do you have a copy handy? You should grab it. So this, oh, he's got it over here. So my prop moment, I'm, I sort of missed the ball, but they haven't gotten it. Uh, the book, A Nation of Immigrants, was only the second book that JFK ever wrote. The first book, of course, was Profiles in Courage. So he wrote two books in his lifetime, one of which was commissioned by the ADL. And it's this year we're celebrating the 60th anniversary of its publication. You can still buy it on Amazon today. And uh, we're doing something with the JFK Library to reprint it this year. Oh, just hold it up. So this is the book. So uh, we'll pass it around. And anyone who's interested, let me know, and we can get you a copy of it. You have to sign up to get a copy of it. Oh, it's famous Marshall Gantz. Uh, then, uh, so again, oh, oh, and, then, and then on my wall, one of the proudest things that I have in my possession is um, a telegram that LBJ, or his office, sent to Ben Epstein, who had this job in the 60s, inviting him, it was 1965, to Liberty Island, where the president was signing the, the Landmark Immigration Act of 1965. And I have one of the pens that LBJ used to sign it, again, on my wall in my office, which is really quite remarkable. So when I advocate today and stand up for Syrian refugees, as we've done again and again and again and again and again, it's because, again, we were once strangers, too. And we can't forget that. So from fighting for African-American equality or for immigration rights or for um, uh, LGBTQ acceptance or fighting Islamophobia and for Muslim Americans or fighting for uh, the disabled community. This is just part of what we do. So number one is advocacy, whether it's in the courts or in Congress or even in the court of public opinion. Number two is education. The ADL is one of the largest providers in the United States of anti-bias, anti-bullying, anti-hate content in schools. We touch about a million and a half school children every year. And we do that because you can't lobby or litigate your way out of hate. You've got to change hearts and minds. And then number three, we work with law enforcement. We work with law enforcement to, A, um, help track hate crimes against the Jewish community and other communities, B, to help them investigate hate crimes. We have a whole research group that researches extremists. And number three, to train law enforcement on how to deal with hate and hate crimes. So literally the ADL trains about 15,000 law enforcement officers every year at the local, state, and federal level. The, the vast majority of that is training them around, how do you deal with a hate crime? How is it different than an ordinary crime? How do you deal with the victims of a hate crime? What special services are required? So this is a lot of what we do. We train the FBI at Quantico. We train big city police departments. It's really important. And now we're moving into using the content from our anti-bias, anti-hate stuff in schools to do training on intrinsic bias for large-scale law enforcement agencies who know they have a problem with institutionalized racism. We want to help them solve it. Okay, so advocacy, education, and law enforcement. And then we distribute that content, if you will, through 26 field offices across the country. So we show up here in Boston, or in Houston, or in Atlanta, or in New Orleans, or in Los Angeles, at the retail level, working with school superintendents, or police chiefs, or mayors, and state legislators, etc. So we see and we hear a lot. And we are deeply concerned with, I would say, what's happening today vis-a-vis -vis, uh, extremism. So in many ways, America has come a very long way since when we were founded 105 years ago. Right? Jews are widely accepted today, African-Americans, LGBTQ Americans, Latinos, et cetera, et cetera. But it's impossible to miss the warning signs. So something has changed, I think, in our political consciousness in the past two years that merits conversation. Now, again, if I think about anti-Semitism specifically, we, we've been tracking anti-Semitic attitudes since 1964. When we in initially did that, through a sort of a sociological analysis we developed with the University of California at Berkeley, we checked anti-Semitic attitudes upwards of 30% of the population. Nearly a third of Americans held what we would consider classic anti-Semitic attitudes. When we last did that analysis last year, it was roughly 14%. So we know by all measures, 
Americans are an incredibly tolerant people. And we've improved dramatically in the last 50, 60 years, as I'm saying, in ways that we can measure. But over the past 18 months, two years, we have seen an uptick in other instances that are very troubling. So first of all, hate crimes. So hate crimes are defined as crimes committed against an individual or an institution based on uh, an immutable attribute, race, faith, national origin, level of ability, gender, sexual orientation, etc. Um, the FBI takes reports uh, that are gathered at the local level by police departments and reports on them every year. So this past November, November 2017, they reported on hate crimes for the year 2016. They reported a 5% increase year over year. So that is not good. You would prefer to see hate crimes ticking downward, although that's not a demonstrable huge leap. But it's still disturbing. And if you drill down on the numbers, there are some very, very alarming trends. In particular, the largest increase was against Muslim Americans, who saw a 19% increase year over year in hate crimes directed at them as individuals or their institutions, mosques, Islamic centers, etc. Uh, this is very troubling. Latinos and immigrants in general also have, immigrants in general, and then specifically people of Latinos or, or Latino descent also experienced a large uptick in hate incidences as well. Um, so these are very concerning statistics. At the ADL, we also drill down on anti-Semitic incidences in particular. And this data is really alarming. So in 2016, in large part because of a spike that happened in the fourth quarter of the year, we saw a 34% increase in anti-Semitic incidences. So we define an anti-Semitic incident or a hate incident different than a hate crime. A hate crime is like an act of vandalism or violence committed, again, against an individual or institution. An incident would include acts of harassment. So a child being bullied, a woman being molested, not physically molested, but bothered, like on a, in public transportation. That might not constitute a felony or even a misdemeanor. We're still tracking it. And so based on the 34% increase we saw in 2016 that shockingly happened right around the election, in 2017, I said to my staff, I don't want to wait a full year. I want to track this on a quarterly basis. So for the first three quarters of 2017, we saw a 67% increase in anti-Semitic incidences. 67%. Um, that was nearly 1,300 assaults, acts of vandalism, reports of bullying or harassment, many against children. In fact, the number of bullying incidences at K through 12 schools more than doubled in the first three quarters of 17. The number of incidences on college campuses, these could be assaults, these could be like someone tagging a Jewish fraternity with swastikas or someone defacing a Jewish student's dorm room that way. Uh, that was a 59% increase. We will report actually for the full year, the fourth quarter next week. So those numbers I'm not going to break the news here, but they're coming. So oftentimes, these things seem to be triggered by incidences in the political environment. And there's no doubt that we're living in a challenging moment when certain elected officials seem not only incapable of calling out intolerance, they seem focused on promoting it. And the extremists feel emboldened in this environment. You don't have to take my word for it. We're tracking the white supremacists. We're tracking the extreme right. We're tracking the self-identified alt-right, which is a name that sort of a loose confederation of white supremacists who really are of a younger generation and try to exploit the Internet and social media. We'll talk about that. Um, look, and in their own words, people like Richard Spencer, people like David Duke, they're doing high fives when the president is using the State of the Union to repeat phrases that originated in their subreddits. So something is going on that is different. We don't really have a precedent for this in this country. There have always been ex politicians with extremist views. That isn't new. But when Pat Buchanan ran for the Republican nomination in 1992, mainstream Republicans shut him down. And when extremists have run in the Democratic Party, mainstream Democrats have shut them down. 
something has changed in a way that's really disturbing. So these extremists feel emboldened, and they're upping their game. So we also track white supremacist and extreme, extremist activity on college campuses. Now, I'm going to guess, you know, Richard Spencer wouldn't get a speaking gig at the Ash Center. I, I, or so I hope, Tim, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you'd have to tell me that. Um, but I will tell you that with determination and deliberation, white supremacists have increased their efforts on college campuses. We've tracked for the first half of this academic year a nearly 300% increase in activity. So I'm talking about flyering, like decorating a campus with flyers that promote white culture. I'm talking about tabling, like getting a table at an at a event at a student center so they can promote their views. I'm talking about speakers showing up on campus, right, with, again, with focus, not by accident. And then finally, I'm talking about recruiting. And there are groups, new groups. When I say they're new, this isn't like the American Nazi Party or your father's KKK, but groups like Identity Europa or American Vanguard, which you might not know about, but are literally promoting a more sanitized version of white supremacy. Now, many, much of the country focused on this uh, in Charlottesville when many of these groups convened and marched through the streets of a major college town. I think what's notable about that is that you, it, and actually yesterday was the six-month anniversary of the Charlottesville incident. That was the largest white supremacist gathering in more than 15 years in this country. And what was notable about it was not just how they've dropped, you know, combat boots for, like, Brooks Brothers suits, but how they're marching out in the open with no shame, with no apology, feeling like, again, they're trying to penetrate the political discourse because they see an opening because of the rhetoric that's coming out of certain quarters of, of Washington. And it's going to probably get worse. So we have candidates who are, like, literally associated with the so-called alt-right running for office. We had one who was supported by the alt-right running for treasurer or governor in Ohio, or Senate, sorry, Senate in Ohio who recently dropped out. We have a candidate running for Paul Ryan's seat in Wisconsin who is openly, flagrantly alt-right, white supremacist, uh, an abject racist and anti-Semite. And in fact, he was just suspended yesterday from Twitter because his, really, he is uh, a piece of work. And of course, some of you may have seen just last week on CNN when they interviewed an open member of the American Nazi Party who's running for a congressional seat in the Chicagoland area. He happens to be running for the Republican pri in the primary unopposed, so he will be the candidate, barring some force majeure, he will be the candidate in the, in the general uh, in the coming months. So if this seems different to you, that's because we think it is. So what's created this difference? What are the conditions in which this kind of extremism can take hold? And I should point out, we can find models in Europe for this. Today in Europe, you have an authoritarian government in Hungary that flirts openly with sort of fascistic ideas. You have a right-wing government in Poland that's gotten a lot of attention lately for criminalizing memory of the Holocaust, the role Poles played in that. You have in Germany the AFD party, which came in third in their primary elections, which is a party affiliated with uh, former, started by former Nazis. And in Austria, the governing party today that Prime Minister Kurtz is in coalition with, again, founded by ex-Nazis. Now, I don't want anyone to think that any side of the political spectrum is exempt from intolerance. There are certainly issues with the left. And we shouldn't just say, yeah, it's all only one side. It's not. Extremism comes in many forms. But we're particularly concerned with this rising right-wing supremacy, and that's what I'm talking about here today. So how does it happen? Well, number one, we think it happens in large part because uh, there are some extremists, again, who found their ideas have taken hold with certain candidates and political leaders, and they're exploiting the opening. The lack of a call-out has created the conditions in which they're working much more harder to normalize and penetrate the political conversation. So number one, when leaders don't call out extremists, it emboldens them. It encourages them. 
So we think it's incumbent upon all elected officials and all public figures to shut this down when it happens. And if you're not going to shut it down, to at least contextualize it so Americans understand what this is really all about. And they thrive on an environment, by the way, where there's economic anxiety. And there is legitimate economic anxiety today. Automation, AI, Amazon, the, e, the three A's, uh, literally are eviscerating main streets and creating all kinds of concern among ordinary workers. There was something that happened in the late 2016 campaign, Alex Jones, who runs a radio or YouTube program called InfoWars. I'm going to guess many of you are not watching InfoWars. Consider yourselves lucky, but we do. And uh, Alex Jones, who will now probably do a piece on me for saying this, he ran a whole show on the, quote, Jewish mafia, the Jewish mafia, and how they were to blame for, number one, health care, Obamacare, sorry, and number two, Uber. Okay, so I'm not really going to try to get under the hood of Alex Jones's brain, but I can tell you what he was talking about with Uber is concern, um, what's the number one job of non-college educated white men in this country? Anybody know? Truck driving. Yeah. Truck driving. Driving generally, particularly truck driving. And so there's a great deal of concern that Uber will do to the trucking industry what it's done to the taxi industry. And where will those jobs go? So you've got to find someone to blame it on. And the Jewish mafia, I'd love to meet them, but yeah. are a convenient scapegoat. So, number one, the lack, of, uh, the lack of the condemnation creates conditions in which extremism thrives. Again, number two, economic anxiety creates conditions in which people look for simple solutions, especially where Washington seems to lack answers. We have no real public policy programs to deal with these issues like automation and AI and even Amazon. And then number three, social media. Social media has literally become the battlefield where people are able to sort of weaponize the First Amendment and spread slander and stereotypes under the guise of free speech. But look, when the, when the founding fathers wrote the Constitution, they didn't suggest that, we don't believe they implied that freedom of, of uh, expression means freedom to incite violence. And we need to be able to distinguish between hateful speech, which we might not like, and harmful speech designed with an intent to impair people with the ability to fully participate in public life or to cause them specific harm, as we've seen happen, through Twitter and Facebook and other sort of platforms. Um, and we've tracked this. You know, we did some analysis during the 2016 campaign of anti-Semitic abuse on Twitter directed at Jewish journalists or people, journalists who people thought were Jews. We took a random sample of Twitter data just a big random trove of it, which we could pull down. Anyone can do it. And we found unbelievable millions and millions of anti-Semitic tweets over a 12-month period. And we found tens of thousands directed at journalists. And the kind of stuff that would make your hair stand on that. You know, pictures and, and memes and gifs and just really, really terrible stuff. So, so what does it take to solve this problem? I'll just say, number one, we certainly need big tech to step up and stop, again, uh, this kind of harmful speech. We have to have a degree of tolerance, even for uncomfortable ideas that make us uncomfortable in a democracy. But freedom of speech is not freedom to slander. Freedom of expression isn't freedom to, to uh, intimidate. And the freedom to talk about ideas isn't the freedom to terrorize people because of you know, how they pray or where they're from or who they love. So big tech has a role to play. By ADL launched a center in Silicon Valley last year, which we can talk about. Number two, education is the best antidote to this kind of ignorance. That's why we do anti-bias education in schools. You've got to make sure that young people understand about the quote-unquote other and how to deal with issues of difference. And in doing so, we believe you can immunize them from intolerance. And then number three, again, our, our elected officials our political leaders, more broadly public figures, have to step up and shut this down. Whether it's happening at the water cooler or it's happening in the West Wing, America should be no place for hate. All right, so that's my piece. Maybe we can open it up to a conversation, Sarah, and then take questions. Okay. Um, 
had a couple of questions for you, um, particularly related to the a campus. And the, uh, um, yeah. One is this question about free speech, that there is a lot of debate um, across the country, particularly around college campuses, about who should be invited, who should not be invited. Are there? Can you help us think about how, how do you think about that notion of should there be a line of someone who shouldn't, I mean, it's unlikely the Ash Center would invite Richard Spencer, but should there be a standard for who should not be invited to speak at the Kennedy School or at Harvard? And if so, what is that line, and how do you keep it from working against yep. the people that we, you know, that we might want to hear but someone else objects to? So I think, first of all, I'll just acknowledge these issues are hard. These issues are not easy. So someone looking for like a pat answer is going to be, or expecting me to have some glib sound, that would be very disappointed. Because it's complicated. It really is. When you have a president who describes Mexicans as rapists, or who enacts a ban on people based on how they pray and their ability to come to this country, right, or, or directs, you know, vitriol on a con continuous basis against African Americans, athletes, celebrities, etc., like, I'll acknowledge it's hard because the laws of public decorum seem to have changed. That being said, I think there are a few things to think about. So number one, I mean, I will tell you that I don't believe in safe spaces on a campus. I think you need to have brave spaces on a campus where you have tough conversations, even with people whose ideas you don't like. That being said, that doesn't diminish the need for standards. So when you think about inviting a speaker to campus, and you may have protocols. So for example, maybe a student group has to sponsor a speaker, which means there has to be a critical mass of students who've indicated they want to hear this rather than some outside group just tabling at your event, which, by the way, is one of the things that the white supremacist groups do. They don't really have sponsorship, right? They just insert themselves. A uh, student group may have to sponsor it. Let's say that's your protocol. Second, you may have to have standards. So if there's someone, for example, a speaker, and I won't mention any names, with a history of inciting uh, violence or committing you know, acts of hatred, like hate crimes, if you will, you may say, you know what, that's a violation of our university standards, and we won't allow that. So, number, so a few things. Again, number one, you have to have some protocols. I think they're important. Actually, number one, you have to be willing to hear ideas you don't like you don't like, and you can't say, well, I don't want to hear it because it's a microaggression or even a macroaggression. I think you've got to be willing to do it in an academic environment. But, number one, protocols are important. Number two, standards should apply. And then number three, I also think contextualization is key. So to invite a speaker who's going to propound hateful ideas and then not provide any context for said speaker, I think is a major mistake. So let me give you an example of a place where I think got it right. So I am no fan of the uh, government of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Why? Because it brutalizes its own people, because it represses the LGBTQ community, because they are horrific to the Baha'i population, because they're the largest state sponsor of anti-Semitism in the world, and they hold annual contests on denying the Holocaust. And this is just on their better days. Like, I could go on. That being said, you know, President Ahmadinejad was invited to Columbia a few years ago by Lee Bollinger, who was an advocate for the First Amendment and a, and a, and a good guy. And so that was a great deal of controversy. Why would you invite this, 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 this hateful anti-Semite and jerk there? He is the leader of a country of 60 million people. So they invited him. But President Bollinger did something important. Before the remarks, he provided context. And he laid out, this is why we're doing it, and this is how we're approaching it. And there were other things that happened on campus to contextualize President Ahmadinejad's remarks. This is a man who said again and again he wants to destroy the state of Israel. This is a man who said terrible things about America, lies. But Lee Bollinger, not only did he contextualize the remarks, they created a forum in which Ahmadinejad had to answer any question that was asked. And so one of the questions that was asked of the Iranian president was, how do you deal with LGBTQ or gay and lesbians inside Iran? And President Ahmadinejad helpfully pointed out, well, we don't have any gays in Iran. <laughs> right. So I think he exposed his own ignorance 
which allowed the crowd that had already benefited from context to draw their own conclusions. So that's kind of a long-winded way, I think, of how I might approach it if I were a university administrator. Not easy at all, but if you're careful and deliberate about it, I think you can maintain academic freedom while also preserving the integrity of the institution. I think we're in, I think your point that we're, the norms of everything are shifting is a really important yeah. one. We're in a different context. So that um, in a recent poll of college-age students, it was the first time that um, a majority thought it was okay to shut down a speaker you didn't right. agree with. And, I, you know, I think it's a different, I think you're right, it's a challenging environment where we have to look at the whole um, what's going on politically and we can't go by the rules that have always worked. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it sounds glib, but it's complicated. It is. And I think you've got to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. I think in an academic environment in particular, although this applies more generally too, we benefit from a robust debate. Mm -hmm. And what makes this country great is its diversity and its pluralism, which applies to our population, to the ideas that we allow to percolate and gain ground. Um, so we generally support that. Now, again, all of that being said, um, it's hard when, you know, some ideas coming out of the Oval Office seem to conflict with core American, basic American norms. But by the way, so one of the things that happens in that kind of environment, I should point out, is you have different kind of leaders who show up, like CEOs, like Ken Merck or Ken Frazier from Merck, who runs a very large global pharma company who uh, stepped off of the president's corporate advisory board in response to the way he responded to Charlottesville. Now, I don't think Ken Frazier expected this would be his moment, but he showed tremendous leadership to do that. Or, you know, you've seen, you know, many of these athletes step up and say, you know, we respect the office, but we don't necessarily agree with the ideas of the individual who's holding that office today and show a degree of leadership. So I think this is one of those moments where, whether it's an athlete or it's a CEO or other activists who show up in maybe, you know, su uh, surprising ways. Um, so you talked about the three buckets of the ABL and the sort of three approaches to mm -hmm. the current environment, advocacy, uh, education, and law enforcement. Um, students don't automatically fit into any of those buckets. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what advice you might have for either people who are discouraged in the current environment. We, the, at the Kennedy School, we have a number of students who came in or thought they wanted to come to the Kennedy School because they wanted to go into government, and that has changed. Um, now, so talk a little bit about what, um, what we, and particularly students, can do. Huh. That's a good question. Well, I think there are a few things. So I think civic participation can happen in different ways, number one. So I'm now running this nonprofit organization. I've never done that before. I worked for President I was. I had the great privilege of serving in the White House under President Obama, which was a tremendous gift. Uh, and I ran businesses. And I would say in all of those examples, I was doing the public interest. So my companies were socially responsible businesses that were absolutely about creating economic value for my investors or for shareholders, but were also creating about, were about creating measurable social benefit for kind of stakeholders in the broader community. And I think that uh, here at the ADL, you know, we're a global NGO that has great reach, and I'm able to drive change. But I would tell you, it is in government. It is in government where you get the most leverage. And, you know, I ran the Office of Social Innovation, as you said, Sarah, at the White House. And typically we think about innovation, like if you read any of the literature, and, uh, you know, faster, better, cheaper, right, for commercial gain or for profit. Social innovation is like slower, <laughs> laborious, More and expensive. hard. Expensive and harder <laughs> for the public good, for the common interest, right? Um, but it's so deeply, powerfully, incredibly rewarding. It's exhilarating and rewarding. And I think if you believe in democracy, there is no more noble pursuit than spending time in government. Be prepared, because it ain't like Google, right? Like, it is hard work. 
And sometimes, you know, we were talking earlier, one of the things that President Obama is I worked on tax reform, very sexy. <laughs> and uh, I spent two years pushing through a, like a bulletin, which is like a newsletter <laughs> published by the IRS, where I had a paragraph that predicated on like certain like semicolons <laughs> and, uh, you know, that changed a particular uh, rule. Mm -hmm. But in changing that rule, Look, uh, I, have, I don't have any hubris here, so there's a lot of things that have to happen with the, have to work. But the idea of changing that rule is to facilitate the ability, in this case, of public pension funds. We're talking three and a half to four trillion dollars in value to be able to be deployed toward investments that create measurable environmental and social benefit. Imagine where else you get a chance to help facilitate trillions of dollars going to invest in communities or create a more sustainable environment. Like, what a, what a privilege. So even though it, is, it seems right now maybe uh, painful and it almost might seem punitive to work in public service, there could never be a more important time. I mean, we need inspired leaders now more than ever to heed that call. So uh, as, as challenging as it may seem, I can't think of anything more important to do. Okay, one final question, then we'll open it up. Has this current um, political environment and the current president, as we talked about, made your job or the job of the ADL easier or harder? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Uh, so did Dickensian. It's kind of like the best right. of times and the right. worst of times, mm -hmm. right? So look, I mean, we're raising more money than we ever have in our 100-plus year history. Mm -hmm. We have incredible amount of groundswell of interest because the work that we do seems so current and timely. But I would trade all of that, all of it, for an environment in which my kids, who are a little bit darkly complected, wouldn't worry about how they're going to be treated by strangers. Because my wife is, uh, came here as a political refugee. She's not American. I would trade all of that for an environment in which my friends who are Muslims didn't worry about their children and how they're going to feel growing up in this country. I would trade all of that, um, all of it for, like, my, I have my special assistant who just, um, my former special assistant is LGBTQ, and he was like, can I, will I be able to get married to my partner? Because he's worried about where his rights be constrained in this environment, in this justice department, et cetera. So look, the president is, this, this isn't about, I don't think it matters how you vote. It matters what you do with prejudice, right? Like, I don't really care what, how you vote. I really care about what you value. And those are the things that I find painful now. Not that laws are changing. They're not all changing overnight. It's the norms that are eroding. It's what we've allowed to seep out from the shadows, like into the center of the kind of conversation. And, you know, I wish that we didn't have to deal with that. Okay, let's open it up. Yes. Microphone, or we can repeat the question also. Uh, thank you very much again, um, Marina. Marina, um, I'm from the Fletcher School, so Tufts University. Oh, um, thank you very much. So my first question actually just ties on what you uh, last closed with, which is um, sort of best of times, worst of times. Uh, ADL got uh, millions of dollars in donations after the Charlottesville incidents. Um, and on your note with, you know, the role of big tech and um, the private sector in countering extremism on, online, I'm wondering what is sort of the, um, in your view, the best uh, balance between freedom of speech and freedom of slander. Should, should they be taking sites down? Should they be um, involved in more of the counter-narrative end? So Marina asked me to everyone here, like, specifically around what's happening with big tech and on social platforms, uh, the balance, if you will, between freedom of speech and freedom of slander, if you will. So a few things. Um, I think we have to respect free speech in all places. We do. But again, slander and speech are not the same. The tech companies for a long time have had a very libertarian attitude, a very laissez-faire approach, anything goes. That's part of, I think, the whole culture of Silicon Valley. It's a bit of a West Coast thing. Combined with, I think, not realize, I say this, I've lived there for a long time, combined with kind of, I think, almost not realizing how they're, platforms are being repurposed by racists. Um, there are ways they can deal with it. So number one, I think context is super important. 
So if you do a search right now on your phone on, say, like um, cancer, like cervical cancer or uh, prostate cancer, you will get in the Google search results a set of information, but you also get like a, a definition provided by Google with WebMD to provide you, someone searching on this information, with standard, standard information they think you need to know. Why? Because they don't want fake news about fake medicines spreading around. They want to give you kind of a verified answer. So you can imagine when someone looks up the Holocaust, or someone looks up, are all Muslims jihadis? Or someone looks up some other thing, Google, just using that as an example, could provide standardized information from the NAACP or the Human Rights Campaign or the ADL about why those views are bad, or a more balanced view, if you will. So that's a way you could allow all views to show up in the search results, but you could condition the user to see, but there's a certified, kind of verified by a third party definition you should know, or answer to a question you should know. A second thing you could do, and we've seen YouTube do this, um, we've dealt with them quite a bit around extremist content. Because, you know, YouTube reports hundreds and hundreds of hours of user-generated content being uploaded on their platform every minute of every day. Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of hours of content. They don't control for it all. So everyone from Al-Qaeda is doing recruiting videos to white supremacists are doing disgusting hostile videos, et cetera. So one of the things that they've enabled now is a new set of features. So when, it, when an extremist video is identified, they allow it to be up on YouTube. Laissez-faire, freedom of speech. However, number one, they don't allow you to share it. So you can't easily push it out to Twitter or to Facebook. Number two, it doesn't appear in the search results. You have to have the URL which is, you know, 147 characters long and totally inscrutable. They don't allow them to monetize it, so they don't put brand advertisements on there anymore. They don't allow comments on there, so they restrict the ability of other people to add on other kind of bad messages. So they found ways to honor freedom of speech, but to mitigate the risk of spreading these kinds of extremist content. So... Again, Google, two parts of Alphabet, Google and YouTube, provide examples of, I think, ways we can contextualize and try to compartmentalize extremist content while still being... Um, and how did those happen? Were those completely voluntary? Was uh -uh. The, right. Uh -uh. right. So the latter happened because of jawboning from us and other organizations. Mm -hmm. But we're really, you know, th we have this new center in the Valley. We're talking to YouTube literally every single day on these issues. And then secondly, uh, the, uh, the former... That Google hasn't totally done yet, but we're working with them on that. So I think, by the way, here's the other thing. If you're a Kennedy School grad looking, you know, feeling a call to service, you don't have to go to government. NGOs offer a really rich opportunity because we need talent. We need, in, we need entrepreneurial, motivated individuals who want to come in. I mean, you're from Fletcher School, too. <laughs> Are you, is there a joint program between Kennedy and Fletcher? Uh, not a formal not joint. You can cross-register okay, cool, courses. Cool. Yeah. So you, we need those people in our institutions as well. Yes, question over here. Yeah. What's your name, sir? Member of the community. Uh, while many of the academic associations have condemned it, at least one American academic association has supported the BDS movement, which, among other things, would black, block uh, Israeli academics from visiting and presenting papers and, and travel the other way. What is the ADL's uh, view of the BDS movement? We, we don't support the BDS movement. Frankly, we don't support the BDS movement. We don't support, we support a two-state solution. We're active advocates for two-state solution. I know that's a bit out of vogue these days, considering some of the activities of different actors in the region. That being said, uh, we think the best resolution uh, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is two states for two peoples, one that secures the safety and security of Israelis and provides the dignity and equality of Palestinians. The BDS movement is opposed to that, and so we're, we strongly oppose it. Question over here. Hi. Um, sorry. Um, one, one of the things. What's your name? Your name? My name is John. I'm, I'm here at the Ash Center. Um, one of the things that was kind of interesting over the last year was that in France, mm -hmm. the alt-right party, the Front National, had a very large support group among LGBT French. Sure. And in America, one of the leading so-called alt-right activists is openly gay. How do you reconcile 
the notion that this modern incarnation of right-wing nationalism includes people that are in their own way, uh, that are actually like minorities and are also sort of latching on to these groups because of the fear of being discriminated against? Yeah, it's hard. It's a very good question, John. And it's hard to square. There was a prominent Israeli last week who, who advocated support for the AFD in Germany. This, again, this, this super hostile, extreme right-wing party founded by ex-Nazis. Uh, making sense of this is hard. I mean, I think, look, there are issues in Europe that are real about economic stagnation. There are issues in Europe that are real about effective integration of immigrant communities. There are, there are issues in Europe that are real, as some of these communities have experienced terror in different forms. But to think that uh, a surrender of liberal democracy to, like, populism, to nativism, to its kind of demagoguery will solve the problems, I think, is really, is not only uh, a bad reading of history, I think it's a bad prescription for the problem. And I think more specifically, uh, what we tend to see, and I wish I could quote the data chapter and verse, but those who hold intolerant views toward one group tend to hold intolerant views toward others. So if you hold prejudiced idea toward Muslims, you probably aren't a big fan of the Jews. And if you hold prejudiced ideas toward um, you know, immigrants, you're probably actually not a big fan. Your agenda isn't really all that supportive of you know, LGBTQ rights. So I, I think it's a bad read of history, and I think it's a bad uh, diagnosis of how to actually cure the issues at hand. Again, acknowledging the issues at hand are real. I just think nativism, populism, these things are bad, you know, bad ideas. Yeah, over here. Student at the Kennedy School. Um, and following up on that question and specifically looking within the Jewish community, something I've noticed, and you mentioned it in this, like, crazy Israeli guy coming out for some extremist party yeah. in Germany, but yeah. there's a right wing within the Jewish community. It tends to be right politically and, and right on the religious spectrum. Sure. Um that were supportive of Trump and maybe, you know, have their own biases against other communities within the U.S. I'm wondering, does the ADL think at all about looking inwardly within the Jewish community and, and doing education, and how do you approach that? Totally. So we may be one of the oldest civil rights organizations in the country, but we're definitely a Jewish group. And so we worry a lot about polarization within the Jewish community as we worry about it in the broader body politic. And indeed, as you have in the broader body politic, you have in the Jewish community uh, – sort of a hard right that feels in part that President Trump is doing things vis-a-vis Israel that they like. Um, and some of that sentiment I understand, even though I can't square so many of the other things that he's doing because it's so inimical to our agenda. That being said, I think, you know, we try to call out the issues, if you will, uh, rather than go after specific individuals and try deeply and 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 frustratingly, and, but nonetheless uh, persistently to try to bring the community together. I mean, I think when Jews fight with other Jews, it's the anti-Semites who win. So we're constantly trying to bring people in. But, you know, I mean, you can look at my Twitter feed. Like, there's constant, I'm constantly being attacked because people, I swear, they keep score. Oh, you went after this person on the right, you have to go after this person on the left. Oh, you're, 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 you're short of your score. Um, it's crazy. And I think it's deeply, not only is it really deeply dysfunctional for this minority community or any of them, it's very unhealthy for our democracy. So the short answer is I'm concerned about extremes in any segment of society, but particularly in our community. I try to push back and, again, say it's not about how you vote. It's what you value. And let's stay focused on that and not keep, you know, political score. Over here. Yeah, my name is Jay. I'm a longtime supporter of BDS, and uh, to further contextualize, I've been watching ADL for a long time, the way they've been attacking our members and uh, other people that oppose the extremist views of uh, pro-Israeli uh, advocates for occupation and apartheid. So it's, this is really a Trojan horse. You use the, the discourse of, of civil rights, but you're actually part of the Israel lobby. That, that's your, your main function. Jay, thank you for the lovely question. Clearly, it was intended. Yeah, I have friends who've been personally attacked Okay. I appreciate your opinion. Um, if advocating for a two-state solution is being part of the Israel lobby, I'm proud to be a part. 
if advocating for dignity and equality for all people is part of some agenda, I love that agenda. And I will relentlessly pursue it as much as I can. Happy to talk to you more offline. This is a student session. Questions over here? Yeah. Hi, my name is Max. I'm with the Extension School here at Harvard. Uh, with YouTube, uh, they seem to get a lot of criticism uh, for relying too much on algorithms. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of opened up the space for the extremists to use. Yeah. So what advice would you give to them on, on that issue? You know, it's funny. Just last week we launched something uh, called the online – what's today? It was – The 13th. So it was Monday. We released the online hate index. Same way we've tracked anti-Semitic and biased attitudes like IRL, we're now starting to track it online. Because there are real issues that you can see and patterns you can detect. And I think it's safe to say that YouTube, but not only YouTube, Alphabet more generally, Facebook, Reddit, a bunch of these services have not realized the extent to which their AI can be and algorithms can be manipulated. We saw a glint of this in 2015, no, 2015, when Microsoft released uh, a program on Twitter called the Taybot, T-A-Y-B-O-T. Do you remember this? So it was sort of an example of very sort of primitive AI where it would talk to users and it could respond to their questions based on some, again, it was a primitive AI and contextual analysis. What it ended up happening is the white supremacists identified it, went after it, and repeatedly hit the Taybot, this Twitter account, with anti-Semitic and racist and misogynist stuff. So soon it learned that, that, that Hitler was a great man, among other things, and started spewing that back out. So I think that was like an early indication of how, if not, if not designed correctly, these things are really problematic. But you know what? Legislation can be part of the solution, but to think that our elected representatives in Washington can keep up with technology is foolhardy. So we need to engage the companies to realize it is in their best interest, it is in their bottom line to ensure that their platforms allow for many points of view without compromising user safety. So we're trying to work with them. It's an ongoing process. I think they now understand uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Google. It's funny when your general counsels get hauled before a congressional committee. I think they now understand that they've got work to do, and so they're cooperating in new and, I think, very encouraging ways. Over here. I want to pick up a little bit on <clears throat> your – Miles, do you want to – I'm sorry. I'm Miles Rappaport. I'm a senior fellow here at the Yale Center. Uh, on your best of times, worst of times. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you know, the, the causes for concern that you list are major – on the other, it does seem like in the kind of broader culture or broader civil society, um, there are lots of good evidences of growing tolerance. I mean, I've been watching a little bit of the Olympics, yeah. right? And the advertisements are kind of stunning in there. You know, we are one, we are whole, yeah. we love each other, we're mutual. Sure. Um, so it just seems like there, it, there seems to be some evidence of other parts of the society sort of stepping up in response to the – to the hate, and just curious as to how you see it. Like, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I, I think, Miles, it's a great, great example. So look at the advertisements on the Super Bowl, yeah. how extraordinarily uplifting and encouraging they were, how they celebrated diversity rather than running from it. You know, it struck me, my wife and I were in New York City a couple of years ago on the day of the Pride March, and what struck us was all the people, we were in like a, like a little deli with one of my kids getting a bite to eat. And all these people came in off the Pride March wearing like shirts that said things like uh, Anderson, like the consulting firm, or Accenture Pride. And uh, Goldman Sachs, LGBTQ Club, and all these other things. And you start to realize, like, why would the companies do this? They do this because this is their workforce. Their workforce is LGBTQ, if you will, some percentage of it. Or... Friends and siblings, or and their clients, or their clients, and you realize that diversity and inclusion is not. Look at this new thing that started last year. Tim Ryan, CEO of PwC, one of the biggest consulting firms in the world, created this thing called CEO Action for uh, diversity and inclusion. CEO Action for diversity and inclusion to promote diversity and inclusion as values, 
a year plus later, you know how many members they have? More than 300. I think CEOs have stepped up because they realize diversity and inclusion are not only good for America, they're good for business. I think you've seen, again, athletes and artists. Think about the Me Too movement. Think about how Hollywood turned around on Harvey Weinstein's, who I've never met. Seems pretty horrible. Uh, and how they've picked up the baton and run with calling out you know, sexual harassment and, and sexual abuse. I mean, so whether it's artists or actors or athletes or executives, there are a lot of encouraging signs. By the way, after Charlottesville, I'll give you a quick story. After Charlottesville, we were so alarmed by that Unite the Right rally. So we reached out to the U.S. Conference of Mayors because my researchers knew there were multiple rallies planned. You probably don't know this, but the white supremacists, the alt-right types, had organized a do- about a dozen rallies. Yeah, but there's one in Boston. Our, there was one, one a week Boston, here later, Boston, yeah. and that's the kind of part of the story. So I reached out to the U.S. Conference of Mayors and said, you know, we know there are more rallies coming just like Charlottesville. Your mayors need to prepare. So we worked with the U.S. Conference. We created sort of a 10-point plan for mayors to introduce anti-bias content in the classrooms of their schools, to train up law enforcement on how to deal with hate crimes, to prepare the planners to give the right kind of permits to protesters. So we said, you can create a plan to, again, inoculate your community from intolerance and prepare before it happens. So we put it out to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. We didn't know how many people would be interested, how many mayors. Within like 36 hours, more than 200 mayors signed up. Today we have over 300 mayors. These are Republicans and Democrats. These are red states and blue states. These are big cities and small towns. And we worked with Marty Walsh here in Boston, Robert Treston, our regional director. He's there in the back of the room. He was the guy who coached Mayor Walsh and coached, what's the police chief's name? Commissioner Evans. On how to prepare so you avoided, literally here in Boston, the kind of debacle that happened in Virginia. So mayors, again, activists, artists and actors and athletes, CEOs, and there's a lot of people who are stepping up, even if at the highest level the leadership is a bit um, uneven. Any last questions? Over here. Hi, Hi, what's your name? Alicia. I'm from the School of Public Health. Um, So you talked a lot about some of the more local initiatives you've Mm -hmm. undertaken and your efforts from a tech uh, tech perspective. My question is, so we're seeing such an increase in discrimination, extremism at a global level. Can you talk a little bit more about what created this perfect storm and how we can combat it from an ideological perspective at a global level? Sure. So we concentrate most of our efforts here in the United States, I'll just be honest. Uh, But we're concerned about what's happening in Europe and in Latin America, two other vulnerable communities of different stock. Um, I think there are a few issues. I think, number one, economic anxiety is a real thing. Like I was saying, in Europe, you've had economic stagnation literally for more than a decade. So there's been a lack of job growth and certainly a lack of wage growth, which creates pressures on certain classes in the economy. I think, secondly, look, the Syrian civil war precipitated the largest refugee crisis since World War II. So more people have been displaced. Millions and millions of people. Europe has seen millions of refugees, but what's happened to Lebanon and Jordan is incredibly, like literally politically unsettling to those countries. Nonetheless, I think governments in Europe have been have not figured out a smart strategy how to deal with the refugees. Not only how you deal with them, how do you integrate them effectively into these societies? And so I think the combination of economic anxiety plus the kind of demogra- some of these demographic pressures, plus we know there are communities who immigrated to Europe who didn't effectively assimilate into the communities in the same way traditions we have here, Alicia, I think. So I think demography an economy, uh, you know, and look, Europe has longstanding traditions, right, which are real, traditions of nationalism, which even if the EU, this wonderful project, has been so important to mitigate some of those centrifugal forces, they're still there. And I think all of this has kind of come together in a, in a real kind of witch's brew. So the question is, how do you deal with it? You need economic policies which foster growth. 
which usually requires some degree of market liberalization and innovation. You need immigration policies, which are sensible and smart, which are humane, but also consider the broader context. And I think, uh, you know, you need governments who literally relish liberal democracy and encourage it rather than squelch it. So all these things, I think, are part of the equation of getting this right. But it's hard. It's really hard. It's not easy. And, um, you know, it's at a moment where I think our country seems to be in a bit of a retreat. This is one of those moments where I think U.S. leadership's never been needed more. Anyways, and on that happy and uplifting <laughs> note, thank you very okay, much. Okay, well, no, I want to thank Jonathan. I think one of my takeaways from this is what you said both explicitly and the examples you gave about um, the fight for um, inclusion and tolerance and civil rights is not just of one group that it's, it's so closely connected between all of the different um, faces and shapes it can take and how important it is for all of us to be involved in all of those fights. So thank you, very, thank you much very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.